Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor. I am your co-host. We are live streaming from our studio here in Tucson, Arizona from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Arizona. In studio with me is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. It's an exciting day. We get to teach on the book of Ezekiel later tonight. It's awesome. always uh, an amazing book to uh, wade into. Lots of uh, interesting insights, too. Very applicable to our day and age. Very much so. Yeah. It's yeah. And and by the way, when we say we go through the book of Ezekiel, we are a church that teaches book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So you can go the to whole Bible. We don't skip books. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily in order, like from Genesis, but we do uh, try to. We have uh, quite an amazing archive. So if you want to visit our website, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, go to our sermon archives. You can actually follow along with Pastor Scott over 20 years of Bible teaching going verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter. So I'd encourage you to do that. This program, also in studio with us, is uh, Pastor Sean Richards. He is the uh, the offspring of Pastor Scott Richards. <laughs> My right-hand man, protege, and all-around good guy. One this can the, be verified genetically. Yeah, one of his <laughs> transitional forms. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we were laughing earlier. I was uh, told that I was a transitional form on the uh, interwebs today. On the tweeters. That's uh, <laughs> the exciting thing. Mm. <laughs> Tra- transitioning into what is the question. <laughs> Hopefully into Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that, that's the kind of transformation I, I can get behind. Mm-hmm. Yep, same here. Yeah. Well, this is a weekday Bible answer program. Our goal here is to give people a reason for hope. We believe that faith is not an emotional crutch or a, uh, a leap that weak-minded people require to move on in life. We believe that faith is truth based on truth and reasonable. So we try to give people reasons for hope. So if you have a question about the Christian worldview or about the Bible, about how to apply a specific passage, or even to interpret or correctly understand a, a text of scripture, please feel free to ask us. And the way you can do that is by joining us on our live stream. There are multiple ways and multiple platforms for which we live stream. You can join us on Facebook. We live stream to there. Uh, all our services, including this program, again, weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And if you go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson, join the live stream and just leave a comment and we'll answer your question as best we can. You can also follow along on YouTube. And if you happen to catch us on some of these social media platforms, please like, share on your newsfeed. If you're on YouTube, we would love it if you'd subscribe and hit that notification bell. Because we just we also live stream all our services, special events, so you can catch all those things. And our Reason for Hope YouTube channel handle is a Reason for Hope 546. If you want to see a archive on somewhere that's not Facebook or YouTube, go to Rumble. We are archiving all our programs there so that uh, if for whatever reason something were to happen and we were no longer allowed on YouTube, which is uh, not out of the question, uh, we have an archive of all our programs and we do separate them by uh, question. So if you're curious about a specific question, you can go through our archives and see the, the primary topics handled in that particular episode. So if you happen to prefer Rumble and you want to go there, please follow us. We'd love to grow our audience there. Our goal is to share the gospel with as many people as possible to reflect as light and salt in this world that's living in darkness as followers of Jesus. So we encourage you to do that. If you uh, 
don't want to follow along on any social media platform, you just want to watch the program and ask questions, well, we have a way for you to do that as well. If you go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and go to the Watch Live tab, you can not only watch our services, as our, well as our Bible teachings and this program, but there is a comment section where you can ask a question. There's a little button you can make prayer requests, so please join us, engage with us, fellowship with us. We really invite you to do so. If you uh, want to, uh, we have a pretty handy Bible app. This app, not only can you w listen to this program, watch the live stream of our services, but it's got a nifty little Bible where you can leave notes, uh, highlight passages, you can create a chat group, of course, this uh, app is really about our community, but gosh, we would love to grow our community beyond the four walls of our church, so feel free to download that. You can get it at the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, finally, you can uh, add us to any of the Amazon Fire products and Roku. If you want to just watch our services and this program, you can watch them live there as well. Now, for those of you who want to ask a question maybe a little bit more discreetly, and don't necessarily want to engage social media wise and tell everybody who you are and what kind of question you want to ask. Maybe it's something a little more personal or maybe you just would prefer to communicate the old-fashioned way through email. You can do so by emailing us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com and if you're li listening uh, here on the radio that's questionsforhope all spelled out at gmail.com uh, we are sorry for those of you who are longtime listeners who used to call in. Uh, we don't have that feature anymore, but you can email us. Even during the program, I, I, I will have that uh, email uh, uh, app up. And so if you were to email me right now, I would actually see it, and we could engage with your question. And uh, last but not least, we'd invite you to follow Pastor Scott here on the tweeters. Probably one of the last social media platforms in the world where you have sort of a almost a genuine sense of freedom of speech. So uh, if you don't have an account, we'd encourage you to create one and go and engage with people. Uh, you can follow Pastor Scott at ScottR4H, and that is Twitter.com. Exciting. I think I covered it all. Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> So uh, before we take your questions today, we do have uh, some questions already lined up to get started. We like to invite our Lord Jesus to be present with us, to guide our thoughts and our words. So, uh, Pastor, would you be so kind as to lead us in prayer? Well, I enjoy talking to God, so I'll be happy to do it. <laughs> Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity in the name of your Son and through the power of your Spirit to explore your word here today. And so, Lord, please bring in the questions that you want answered. We pray, Father, we would not deal uh, with uh, these, these precious people who take the time uh, to uh, offer their questions and to share what's going on in their hearts in a superficial way or in a light way, but that we would allow the light of your love and your word uh, shared in an uncompromising way uh, to guide us, to be that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path today. I pray that we would have a, a sharper and uh, more harmonious perspective about everything, even uh, current events and all of the things that can cause such controversy and uh, dis division, even distress in our lives. Lord, let us see through your eyes. Let us hear your voice. And at the end of this program, I pray we'd know you better. Thank you for being with us. Uh, guide us into truth now and move in a, an amazing and supernatural way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So should we tackle our little email question? That, uh, would you like to start with that, Sean? Or do you, do have, you have anything else? to update us with before we get into that? Well, I think uh, there are some things brewing that could be significant prophetically, but uh, I think we'll hold off until tomorrow when uh, we can kind of bring them all together and be able to uh, get some more clarity. I want to make sure <clears throat> some of the things I'm hearing are actually taking place some of the sources a little little shaky but uh, we'll confirm and move on from there so let's dive into our question yeah, imagine if, that waiting for all the facts yeah, yeah. and if you're new if you're listening for the very first time when we talk about prophecy and or a prophecy update really what we're talking about is the bible makes so many prophetic predictions about the future not just our future but the future of the past which is already past but things that have been fulfilled in the person of jesus uh, so i mean one of the greatest uh, arguments that I had ever heard when I was raised as a non-Christian in a home of an agnostic slash atheist was how Jesus's life fulfilled so many prophetic predictions. Right. You know, as an illusionist, I used to think, well, it's all fake, it's all unreal until I came across those truths. But there are prophetic predictions made in the Bible that have not taken place. And so we as Jesus encourages to do, look for the signs of the seasons. And so that's what we mean by prophecy updates. Yeah, 103 predictions Jesus fulfilled in his first coming, but over twice that amount that mm. pertain to his second coming. In wow. fact, uh, we, uh, some people say, well, why do you guys talk about Bible prophecy? Isn't that kind of the, uh, you know, uh, National Enquirer, the TikTok of, uh, of theology? Uh, no, actually, uh, one out of every three verses in your Bible is devoted to predictive prophecy. Mm. So God evidently feels it's an important subject, so we try to treat it importantly as well. And thank goodness, because uh, he knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. So oh, I'm glad Boy, and I'm glad that. about that, <laughs> especially these days. So. Well, Michael Martin wrote us an email asking about uh, a, a Hebrew scholar who has passed away recently who wrote a book called The Unseen Realm, where he describes... Michael Heiser. Yeah. Michael Heiser, yeah. yep. Uh, he describes um, <clears throat> his interaction with a passage in the Psalms that revolutionized what he would say his understanding of the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. And uh, I'll just go right into his question here. He, uh, Michael says, um, the plain statement in the passage, the passage is describing a Psalm 82, which I'll read it in a moment, and then you guys can take it from there. Uh, goes on to clarify that these gods that the psalm describes aren't actually gods and will die like men. Is that, and then he says that as in the form of a question, is that what you're saying? Uh, this is, this is, uh, this is want it said. This is what it said, okay? You are gods, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. And then he says, your statement, which I'm, we're, I'm assuming, uh, Michael, you've listened to the program, or maybe you've read some of our articles where we address Michael Heiser's view on the unseen realm. And I'd encourage you, if you want to read that article, go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, Pastor Sean wrote a really wealth, uh, very thoughtful, well-laid-out uh, article explaining why we disagree with Michael Heiser on this particular point and several, several others. The title but, uh, is, Is the Divine Council, or Michael Heiser's view of the Divine Council, Biblical? And the critique is basically just using his methodology, using his handling of the passage, using the fact that there are other ways of viewing that text. And 
consistently throughout the New Testament as well, we would say that he has to assume more than what he's putting forward. And you can tell by the methodologies used in his articles, on his website, and in his books, all of which are provided for links to, it ends up coming up wanting. He's not a resource we would recommend on this topic. Mm. So Michael's question is particularly pertaining to this passage, Psalm 82, verses 2 through 8. He says uh, that we are saying that he's really describing men, and he calls them gods, but you will die like men because you are men. He says, where does that happen in the verse below? It's clarified, but no way does it say they are men. The understanding is now that they are warned that they will die like men. Uh, So how do you respond to that argument? So uh, the passage seems to indicate, you know, uh, uh, why don't we read the passage real quick, and then I'll let you... Yeah, just go through it at short. Yeah. yeah how, how Eight verses. Yeah. yeah. Do you have it up there? Scott? Yeah. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, literally Elohim, and you are all children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So, um, I, I don't know how we'd like to jump into all of this. I guess we, we could say... How do we justify the view if... We're going to be as fair as possible to Michael. Uh, the question is, how do we conclude that that is speaking of human beings when the text clearly says, you are gods? Okay, a couple things. Uh, first of all, when we take a look at this particular passage, uh, you know, it's very interesting. The whole idea of the divine counsel, in, according to Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen World uh, Realm. Realm, is uh, this idea of these sort of assistants of God, these Elohim, these little God juniors, I guess he would make some kind of a distinction there, and uh, that they help God make decisions, and uh, they help God carry out his plans, and and so forth. Uh, And uh, the the breakthrough moment for Michael Heiser, uh, as we saw in his book, uh, Sean and I got a chance to listen to the audio book as we uh, went on a trip to California. Would have been my third time. (laughs) <laughs> uh, was, uh, you know, him reading this passage and uh, a friend of his coming up to him at church and saying, oh, have you stopped and considered this? And it was almost like a lightning bolt hit him that changed the whole way he looked at Scripture, you know, based upon what we see here. So, uh, you know, when we take a look at this, we say God stands in the congregation of the mighty, judges among the gods. Okay, you know, at first glance, this would seem to be this divine counsel. And you will put back to Job with the sons of God around the throne of God and Satan all also with them and so forth, uh, and say, well, that's what's being referred to here. Well, maybe not. Uh, when the term gods is used here, it's the Hebrew word Elohim. And it can mean, based upon its context, uh, God, as uh, we understand him, the true and living God. It can also be something that can be used to describe men in a position of authority. Uh, you know, there's a, a very interesting passage in the book of Exodus chapter 4, where Moses was uh, interacting with, uh, with God about the call that God had for him to go down to Egypt. And, and Moses is trying to beg off and say, 
you know, I've never been eloquent. I am not eloquent, neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Well, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who's made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you should say. But he said, oh, Lord, please send by the hand of whoever else you may send. He's like saying, I'm just not qualified for this. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you will do the signs. Now notice here we see a chain of communication being established here. Moses said, I'm not a great speaker, never been, you know, maybe even intimating he had some kind of a speech impediment. God says, well, perfect. Here's your brother Aaron. Uh, He can speak well. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to speak to you and you are going to speak to Aaron and Aaron is going to speak to the people. And there's going to be such a flawless chain of communication here that for Aaron to listen to you, uh, it's going to be the same as him hearing from me. So literally defining what it means to be a prophet, literally a spokesman for God, not the deifying of Moses, Mm -hmm. but the representation working here. And he himself himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. In other words, Aaron could look at Moses and say, you know, Moses isn't going to put his two cents worth in here. Moses isn't going to... uh, you know, change the names to protect the innocent, so to speak. Uh, he's going to tell the truth, the whole truth, as he's heard it from God in a flawless manner. As you've, you've said, this is the definition of a true prophet. It was also, as we saw, the definition of what it meant to be a judge in Israel. You might recall later on in Exodus 18, uh, Moses' father-in-law Jethro visits. Uh, Moses has got a line, uh, you know, out the door of people waiting for him to explain God's statutes and commands about the disputes they were having with one another. And he'd sit from morning to evening settling these disputes. And Jethro said, what you're doing is not good. Here's what you do. uh, And if you listen to me, God will be with you and you won't wear out. Mm. Uh, You're going to, uh, you know, break down, uh, you know, into different groups, individuals who can judge, who understand God's word, who can judge these things. And anything that is too difficult for them to judge will eventually work its way up through this structure and come to you. And and so uh, these judges of Israel were given this precedent. They were supposed to be the flawless representatives of God, just as hearing from Moses was to Aaron, just as hearing from God. So the people could count on these judges not to be corrupt, not to be partial, uh, not to accept bribes, but to be the representatives of God's truth applied to their particular sets of circumstances. So with this in mind and with this picture of how God set up the judiciary of Israel to be run, we come back to Psalm 82. 
And it's interesting. Uh, it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, the Elohim, the mighty ones. Now, notice how this judgment or this congregation of the mighty is then described. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Now, the, the first thing that we discover about this so-called divine counsel that's being addressed here is that they've fallen down on the job. They are judging unjustly. They are not representing God as they were intended to from the beginning. Secondly, uh, we are also told that they are kind of ignorant. In verse 5, it says, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Now, it's very difficult for me to suppose that this supposed divine counsel of the exalted angelic beings, who are not fallen, by the way, are uh, described in this passage as being ignorant and walking about in darkness and contributing to the instability of the earth. This is the same divine counsel, so to speak, that's <clears throat> referred to in verse 1. Then we read, I said, you are God's Elohim, right? And all the all of the are your children. You are all children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Well, I don't see any evidence in Scripture that angels are capable of death, but I see lots of evidence in Scripture that unrighteous judges and unrighteous kings and unrighteous rulers in Israel hmm. are capable of death. And again, it says, "O God, arise, O God, judge the earth." for you shall inherit all nations. Now the focus of this judgment that is being described here in Psalm 82 is not something that's going on in some ethereal otherworldly spiritual realm. It's something that's happening here on earth. And as if to clinch the point, Jesus in his interaction used this term, you are gods in an interesting way, didn't he? Yes, in the Gospel of John chapter 10 and verse 34, he quotes this answering their objection to him. It is not written in your law, I said, you are gods. And then notice how Jesus explains this. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, once again, that's John chapter 10 and verse 35, how does he identify those as gods? Not those who bear some divine nature, to use Heiser's term, but to emphasize the ones to whom God came were called gods, not just in the context of Moses, but in the context in general, to those whom the word of God came. According to the book of Romans, chapter 2, who were declared the oracles of God? Who were the ones to whom is in much and in every way a benefit because they were given the word of God? It was... Israel. Human beings? Yeah, human beings. And we also see this term sons of God, which is, again, a stickler for those who support this uh, perspective on the scripture, uh, that there's no reference to human beings as referenced as the sons of God. It is exclusively a supernatural entity, or again, they would use the term divine title. Well, unfortunately for those who take this position, Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10 notes, and that's again quoted in the New Testament, that they would be called Israel, sons of the living God. There's nothing in the context referring to angels, supernatural beings, demons, or some sort of cosmic uh, entity that is interpreted through the perspective in terms of the Kabbalah. So when we're talking about this issue, 
Obviously, the objection is not to say that we're talking about salvific issues unless you're going to hold someone consistent to the claims that they're making. If you deny the plain reading of Deuteronomy 7, Isaiah 44 through 48, uh, I believe uh, in the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy chapter 1, <coughs> noting that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 2 yeah. Timothy 2. We're going to come at an impasse of the kind of God that we're worshiping. Now, fortunately, Michael Heiser was never accountable for anything. Whenever you challenged him on the implications of his claims, he would just default to the same way that Michael began his email and saying, you're not a Hebrew scholar. So if we're going to deal with this at the core of the issue, this is really why we encourage all of you not to avoid Michael Heiser like the plague, but to exercise discernment whenever you hear anything from anyone in the name of God. If I have this new perspective on Scripture, or I'm reviving this old perspective that's been censored and hidden by the church, all uh, Herbert W. Armstrong style, then we need to be able to call their bluff, to say, okay, Here's the credentials, here's the information, here's how I would approach the text, here's how others approach the text. What do you have to offer that is, of course, sufficient, not just in the passage, not just to cover your credentials, but in the entirety of Scripture? And you're going to find that when you read his book, one of three things are going to happen. He'll either A, resort to basically a red herring argument, spend three whole chapters arguing for the concept of free will, and then to justify that as evidence that Satan is in fact a divine being, that he could be titled as a god, you could be lumped in with a association fallacy that if you don't believe my opinions, then you're essentially saying that you're pro-abortion because if you use that logic anywhere else, I can caricature you into holding this position for someone else, and thus you have to admit me, otherwise you're one of those awful pro-choicers. And then of course just saying, I'm a Hebrew scholar, I've done the homework, and you haven't. So that settles it. When you talk to people who've sold themselves out to a personality cult, much like with Pentecostals, much like with Charismatics, much like with people who don't let Scripture stand as the final authority for what God has spoken, the best thing to do is to keep your distance, or at least to clean up the mess they make in the lives of others. But if, on the other hand, we're going to take a step back and say, how do I not dismiss, but effectively engage with these claims that can be falsified or verified if we're willing to have a consistent argument, the answer isn't going to be found in appeal to authority fallacies, meaning he's a Hebrew scholar and you're not, not in red herring fallacies and saying he can prove this over here. Since I've proved something, that means I've proved everything I'm saying. And of course, not to ad hominem strategies. Well, you're just arrogant. Well, you're just against this new work of God. Well, you can't be reasoned with. Well, like the shoe fits, it fits on both feet. But if we're going to ask the actual question here, what does the Bible say? Not that there's a multitude of gods, not that we're intended to become gods, a la Joseph Smith style, and not that, of course, we're no Hebrew scholar, so therefore we can't be uh, trusted to represent anyone accurately, despite that's what he plainly says. It's going to come down to this. Isaiah 44 and verse 6 is the reason why I have nothing to do with Heiser or anyone who supports his view, and I divide fellowship <coughs> over it. Hero Israel. What is the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Hebrews 7, or Deuteronomy 7. What does Isaiah 44, 8 verse say? Or verse 6 say? It is what? I am the first. I am the last, besides me, there is no God. You're going to make an argument, dance around the semantics of language, or hide behind your credentials and to say that doesn't mean what it says, 
and then turn around and say, look at this poem that is applied by Jesus in application to humans and use it as your entire <coughs> crux and foundation of reading scripture in a way where it ends up making mincemeat of passages that would thoroughly disagree with you, but because you can hide behind your education, I don't buy it, and I don't think you should either. But note, whenever someone comes to me asking about Heiser, my first recommendation is read his book, I did. I even read it twice. I almost read it third times, but you made me turn it off. <laughs> so here's the point that's being made. Mm -hmm. Don't recommend him. Don't recommend his views. If you do, understand that I no more question your salvation than I do Heiser himself, but I do personally believe, and I'll stand by this, he has done more <clears throat> damage to the field of apologetics and internet ministries and training than anyone else in the last 10 years, and it grieves my heart that we're going to have to clean up that mess and essentially get people distanced from Arianism and Mormonism and back onto the plain teachings of Scripture. But this is the time that we're living in, and this is the hand that we're dealt, so we'll play it. But if you want to engage with these issues, you want to ask or clarify certain questions, actually bring quotes, actually examine how you're phrasing them, and make sure that they're not only logically consistent, but actually get to the crux of the matter, which is the full counsel of God's Word, not what's presented to you by spiritual leaders and teachers you may even look up to, because I don't. And if I don't share that common veneration of this individual who's handing down these divine insights, then we're going to have a problem, and I'd rather resolve them than create more. Thanks, Sean, for doing all that extra research and taking the time to <clears throat> honestly and sincerely look into the facts and then coming to those conclusions just based on a raw handling of God's Word. And awesome. note, people are allowed to disagree. <clears throat> and if you want to read that article, again, calvarychristianfellowship.com. And what was the name of the article again? Is Michael Heiser's view of the Divine Council biblical? Yeah, you do a Google search. <laughs> of Michael Heiser, Divine Council, it's the first thing that comes <clears throat> up. Yeah, I did the analytics, and I'm shocked of how many hits that article's still getting on our website. Yeah, and it's very <laughs> controversial stuff. Oh, and he could testify, I didn't want that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that kind of attention. Yeah, and the only thing <laughs> I'd add to that is, um, you know, just a, a caveat to those of you out there, and you're like, oh, you know, what does this have to do, you know, with with me and the price of tea in China, um, you know, just be really careful uh, when people kind of get into credentialism. Uh, it's good to have your academic credentials, but if someone, you know, immediately uh, says, well, this is a Hebrew scholar, well, first of all, that's a very elastic term because it's very relative. Um, I'm sure that there would be people in the Ivy League that would look at Michael Heiser and not consider him a scholar because he didn't go to an Ivy League school, for instance. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, he has his doctorate, doctoral level work in Hebrew, well, good on him, you know, I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do. But whenever anybody comes to you and says, boy, you really need to listen to me, like, for instance, I could say, the reason that you should listen to my argument uh, against the, the Michael Heiser's interpretation of Psalm 82 is because I devoted a year of graduate studies in Hebrew. That was part of my Master of Divinity uh, degree that I earned at Talbot Theological Seminary. A year of graduate-level Hebrew, I obviously know more than you do. Well, if I were to say that, um, you know, I, I, I think I'd need to, you know, turn in my badge and get out of ministry. Because the one thing I've discovered, even though I have two years of, uh, of Biblical Greek, Koine Greek, on the graduate level and one year of Hebrew under my belt, uh, I would say this, I have never come across a single passage of Scripture 
that could not be fully understood in it in English simply by looking at its context and asking those famous questions they teach you in journalism school who what where when why uh, if we see what type of literature we're looking at you know whether it's poetic whether it's historic whether it's wisdom literature whether it's prophetic mm. and so on you know we take a look at this we take a look at who the author was what the historical setting was of the particular passage what the overall point of the book that we're studying is all about in general, how this particular section of the book works towards that point of the book, and uh, look at the verses that came before it, look at the verses that come after it. Uh, if we want to, sometimes this can be helpful, uh, go online uh, to say Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words or Brown Driver Briggs for, for Hebrew, uh, you can go to BibleHub.com, and they have a wonderful mm. Hebrew lexicon there. And if you take a look at that, you might be able to get some color, some depth. But I, I'm here to tell you something, and this is kind of the dirty little secret for those who've uh, invested the time, effort, and energy to get a graduate degree in these things. I have never come across a single passage of Scripture mm. whose interpretation turned 180 degrees from the plain sense that you see in English, simply because of the nuance of a Hebrew or a Greek word. Hmm. And if anybody tells you this, boy, your discernometer ought to be going off. You know, no, 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 you can't understand this. You can only understand this if you've done graduate level studies. Or in my case, somebody that was a doctor said, well, you've only got your MDiv, I've got my doctorate. Mm -hmm. Well, somebody else would say, well, you got your MDiv from this school, well, I got my uh, doctorate from uh, Hebrew University, you know, and, and suddenly we're into, you know, you know, comparing our credentials rather than simply saying, okay, what does the clear teaching of the scripture say? So that's why I think this is an important mm. issue because underneath all of this, you know, even the, uh, the question that was raised here, the first words out of the gate were, you're not a Hebrew scholar. Yeah, I was being polite by not reading that part, but yeah. that's how the email began. Yeah. And how every single email we get from this personality cult mm. begins. And, well, and, 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 and I would be really careful with using the term personality cult. I think it's maybe accurate uh, in, in a generic sense, but by using the term cult, we're not saying that if you buy into Michael Heiser's divine counsel point of view that you're not saved. Which I've already said. Or, or that you're not, you know, right. I just need to clarify that because that can be a red herring. Oh, well, he just wrote off you know, us as being cultists. Well, if you become so enamored of one person's opinion on a particular subject, it can be described as a personality cult. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, you know, I served on staff with Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Costa Mesa for the better part of four years. Uh, I was a uh, editor and a ghost writer for a number of his books. Uh, went on that were raw transcript of his sermons that we packaged together in grammatically acceptable format. I love the man. This guy right here next to me, his name's Sean Charles Richards after Chuck Smith, because I wouldn't be in ministry today, nor would I have met my wife, uh, you know, I wouldn't have my children now, if it wasn't for the fact that this guy took a chance on me. Having said that, there are takes on scripture that Pastor Chuck makes that I completely disagree with. Mm. Not on the essentials, but on some of the side issues. And you know, if you ever find any kind of pastor that you agree with 100%, you, know, you never go, huh, well, I kind of 
disagree on that. Well, all that means is you're not paying attention because there are passages in Scripture where sincere people can disagree with one another. But for me to say, oh, well, Chuck said it. Well, that settles it. Um, no. You know, I, I would say 99% of what Chuck teaches, I would agree with. But, you know, for instance, uh, for a while, Chuck took uh, the gap theory position in the book of Genesis. Totally disagree with that. Totally disagree with it. And, you know, I'd be willing to debate it. But Chuck took that particular issue. And then he sort of changed his point of view as, as time went on. But that would be an example of that. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we're a Calvary Chapel. And uh, like I said, uh, I just consider Chuck to be like my spiritual dad. Mm. But that doesn't make me a smithereen. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't make me say, oh, well, you know, the great exalted Chuck Smith said this. And, and if you're really into Michael Heiser and all this, I think you'd be honoring Michael Heiser's memory by having that same kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. I, I think if Michael Heiser were around and could speak to this issue, he'd say, well, of course, you know, uh, I mean, check things out. Make sure that you're getting your takes from Scripture. And uh, I'm sure in his more generous moments, he might say something to the effect of, uh, well, you know, don't believe me. You know, you look into this yourself and someday you'll give an account before God mm -hmm. for your take on this issue. So, you know, don't get all caught up in, you know, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and we are alone of Christ. Mm -hmm. Very old error. Uh, you know, again, Chuck Smith or Michael Heiser didn't die for you, Jesus did. Mm -hmm. And it's his word that any right on biblical teacher is going to point you to. So that goes for all of us. If I were to take Scott's teaching as and his opinion as more authoritative than scripture itself then i have erred and so that's the warning that we're really giving is to to not put more weight into someone's and not to use their scholarly background as an argument which is a, a logical fallacy the appeal to authority yeah and, and i mean not to belabor the issue but uh, one of the things that i do and <laughs> i do it on a regular basis is i keep a file of like the messages that I taught when I was first in ministry, when I was going to Talbot Seminary and you know really involved with an offshoot of John MacArthur's church uh, in Agora Hills, California. Mm. And man, some of the things I taught, particularly on the ministry and gifts of the Holy Spirit, I just go, boy, I can't believe I taught that. Because I, I think completely differently about it now. You know, God has mm. shown me some things I believe and led me into his truth that led me in a different direction. I uh, used to uh, be very, very uh, enamored of Calvinism. Not anymore. Uh, so, you know, if I look at my own notes and I can go, oh, man, I really got it wrong there. Um, you know, you should always be checking out anything that any pastor has to say. And any pastor worth his salt is going to say that. Don't believe me. Don't take this as gospel just because I say it. You know, be a Berean. Acts 17, 11, the Berean believers are more noble-minded than those that thus like it, for they receive the word with eagerness and search the scriptures daily to find out if mm. these things were really so. Well, what things? The things they're even receiving from the Apostle Paul. And they weren't condemned for that. Uh, they didn't say, well, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He sat at the foot of Gamaliel. Who are you to, you know? No, they were commended for that mm. because we should all have that uh, desire to have God's truth. You think it's true that... <clears throat> It's an unfortunate truth that too many individuals put the ideal of a pastor on such a pedestal that they sort of subconsciously conceive that they could never err. 
and that when a pastor has a mistaken opinion or errors in something they might say, they are just devastated. Like, how could this happen? Well, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it was uh, Sonny Jurgensen, the uh, quarterback for the Washington Redskins, who was famously quoted as saying after, you know, a, a bad game, he said, the shortest distance in the universe is the distance between the penthouse and the outhouse. Uh, you know, people either think you're great or they think you're the worst thing that ever lived. Mm. Uh, the, the problem with putting people up on pedestals is there's only one person that should be worshipped. There's only one person who will never let you down. And it's not somebody that you're going to meet here in the horizontal right now. Mm. It's Jesus Christ. The one who mm. puts their trust in him will not be put to shame. And, you know, and, and so I think any good pastor, any good shepherd over the flock uh, is going to be able to say, hey, um, you know, put your trust in God. Don't put your trust in me. And sometimes I've really had to uh, draw lines with some people that I saw were, you know, oh, well, you know, you know, you're just, you know, this and this and this. And I'm like, well, talk to my wife. She'll tell you what I'm really like. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I'll say, you know, sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong. And if I get it wrong and someone comes up to me and says, hey, you know, uh, you know, you said this in your, your message today and I was just wondering how that fit in. I think that's the greatest thing in the world uh, because it tells me they're thinking. They're thinking biblically. They want mm. the Bible to be. They have that Berean spirit and attitude. Not to the point where you're being contentious, not in the point where you're taking pot shots at the pastor or exalting yourself like, well, I know better than he does. And, mm -hmm. you know, I should really, you know, that, that, that's the flesh. But if the, the goal is to base our relationship with God upon his truth as much as we can, we're all in process. We're all in progress. You know, none of us are going to arrive. Now we see through a glass darkly, mm. then face to face. Doesn't mean we can't know anything about God's word. We can know an awful lot, but there are some places in the word of God where sincere believers can disagree, you know? Mm. And so, um, you know, viva la difference, as, the, fr <laughs> as the, the, the French would say, sometimes iron <clears throat> does sharpen iron. Mm. You know, so man, one man sharpens the countenance of another. And so shouldn't be afraid to have conversations, uh, shouldn't be afraid to disagree agreeably. Uh, as long as we got the essentials under our belt, we're going to be fine. Mm. So, I've always appreciated that about you. Thank you, Scott. Yep. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. Uh, we have another question from Cray. Cray. K-R-A-Y. That's a cool kind of name. I don't know if it's the, sometimes people use, you know, online names. We yeah. know that. But yeah. uh, Cray wanted to know is <clears throat> in Revelation 21, 27 talks about, Nothing that defiles or causes abomination will be able to pass through. Why do these gates exist if the enemy is gone? Let That's me read question. verse 22. I saw this is reference to the New Jerusalem. No temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So God will directly meet with his people there. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut by day, and it notes parenthetically, there will be no night there. So <laughs> note there, they're yeah. always open. Yeah. But it says, they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, take maybe three steps back. Imagine a first century mindset that John was writing this to. When you're in the city, you are in the safety 
of walls that the robbers, the pillaging armies, the foreign nations and wild animals and so forth are kept outside and you can be found safe in. The temple, of course, in picture of the old Jerusalem that John is speaking of here, would be contrasted with this not as a building but as a person, that the definition of heaven is being with God. So then noting those who are with God, literally in heaven, are those who belong to him, not the things that don't the things that aren't of him, the things that cause abomination, the things that misrepresent the truth, the things that destroy, that corrupt. Those things will be outside. Now, when I was a little guy, I'd imagine, well, it mentions not in the city. So is there going to be like this new corrupt creation, but then we'll have like our little safe cube of the moon and so <laughs> forth. And that, <laughs> yeah. that, that'll be like our, our recharge points so that we can go out and fight the good fight. No, the point is that the eternal state is going to be with God. And the fact that we will be bringing ourselves into this and everything that about us that has been saved, a la 2 Corinthians 5, we can also note that the things that aren't of God, the things that have been giving us such a hard time in the old creation, won't be a part of that existence anymore. Our lives, the life in the city, so to speak, isn't going to include those things anymore. Why? Because we're with God. That doesn't cease when we leave the city any more than us leaving church removes us from the presence of the Holy Spirit. But noting that point then, what's the new creation going to be like? It's going to be like New Jerusalem. It's going to be a place where there's no evil. It's going to be a place, even more importantly, where good is, where God is, and of course that that will be, as the passage states, where we reign forever and ever. That's something to look forward to. But the idea of it being like, oh, well, if there's no evil out in it, are they like waiting outside for you or something? No, the point is the definition of heaven. Yeah. Awesome. Right on. Thank you. Yeah. Next question. How will all Israel be saved? Uh, Adrian Christensen wants to know this. Will all Israel be saved? How is this possible? Will all Israel be saved in Tucson during tribulation? Uh, what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Thanks for the question. I'll uh, the book of Romans, I assume. Uh, Romans chapter 11. Uh, really a wonderful section of scripture, and lest you know, people feel like I'm pulling my scholarly uh, uh, credentials out. Uh, this was the section of scripture I did my master's thesis on <laughs> because it's heavy-duty stuff. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 uh, is a really fascinating section of scripture because essentially it deals with uh, the one, well, loose thread, if you will, that was still uh, floating around after Paul's airtight argument about the need for salvation by grace through faith. Uh, at the end of uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, we see that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Then in Romans chapter 9, Paul deals with an issue that was probably on the heart of the minds of the Romans that he was writing to. Okay, what about the Jewish people? Why is it that uh, they, by and large, were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? And so in Romans chapter 9, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how brokenhearted he was over all of this, uh, how he wished they could uh, come to understand it. Uh, but uh, that the purpose of God hasn't failed just because Israel, by and large, was rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, it talks about uh, how uh, God sets things up so that we have a choice in this life to be a vessel of wrath or a vessel of uh, mercy. And so uh, we uh, want to be vessels of mercy, but uh, each and every one of us has a choice based upon our response 
to God. Then in Romans chapter 10, he comes back, even though he talks about the fact that uh, the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, uh, the righteousness by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness because they didn't receive it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. So this is like the stumbling stone that God laid in Zion, uh, that uh, whoever uh, believes in Jesus will not be put to shame, but it's going to be a stumbling block for people. So, you know, then Romans 10 comes in. Okay, how are we saved? Uh, he said, uh, you know, again, uh, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Being ignorant of God's righteousness by faith, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believes. And so then Paul develops this thought a little bit more in Romans chapter 10. Okay, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is characteristic of all of this? You know, and so, you know, again, uh, you know, he said that, uh, you know, that uh, whoever puts their faith in Jesus will never be put to shame, but not all have obeyed the gospel, he says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, wait a minute, haven't the Jews heard? Yeah. They've heard. Uh, yeah, but they didn't hear by faith. In fact, uh, to Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's the end of chapter 10. But then he says, and this is where it gets very interesting, I say then, has God cast away his people? Uh, certainly not. In other words, uh, the words there, you want to get into the, the language, the Greek words meganoida, literally means may that not even occur as a thought that would cross the heart of anybody mm. because it is so contrary to God's plan and purpose. First of all, Paul says, well, first of all, I'm an Israelite. He hasn't cast away his people. I'm a Jew with the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. Uh, I'm still in. God always has a righteous remnant, and it's always been that way, even when Israel was hitting on all cylinders. Remember how Elijah complained to God that I'm the only one left, and God says, no, I've got 7,000 others who've not bowed the knee to Baal during that time. He goes, so in the same way, God has a righteous remnant. There have always been Jewish people who accept Jesus as the Messiah. They have always been Messianic Jews. So, you know, what's going to happen to Israel in general? Are only a, like a few going to be saved? Is it always going to be like this righteous remnant sort of thing? Well, by and large, in history, that's how God has worked, really, if you want to get down to it, with Jews and with Gentiles. God has always had a small number of people who genuinely have a relationship with him, uh, you know, a, a greater number of people that might be associated with the things of God but don't really know him, and then you have basically the God-rejecting world out there. That's the way it's been. It's going to be that way until Jesus comes back again. But when Jesus comes back again, there's going to be one final seven-year period of time where God is once again going to deal with with the Jewish people, going back to his promises, Revelation in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, you know, when we think about the final seven years before Jesus comes back, we automatically think, okay, that's the great tribulation, you know, and it's all about the Antichrist, and it's all about the mark of the beast, it's all about these plagues falling. And that's not all it's about. It's about God once again dealing with the world through the Jewish people, mm. gathering 
the Jewish people to himself, the 144,000 we see, these 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, not Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, not uh, highly super spiritual, uh, spiritualized believers, uh, Gentile believers. No, even their tribes are identified in this time. And they're going to have a worldwide impact for his glory. We see two very Jewish prophets having a worldwide impact mm. during this time. We see that uh, the city of Jerusalem is going to be the focus of what is going on here, and that Jesus, in fact, is going to return again and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus is going to return, we are told in verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, have come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that every single individual in the nation will turn to the Lord, but it does mean that the nation as a whole will be saved, just as the nation as a whole, but not every individual in it at that time, was rejecting God. It's going to be the complete flip-flop. The vast minority are going to have a rejecting uh, verdict towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we see that this is going to be the case. When Jesus returns, we're told in Matthew 25, he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. Uh, we're told in uh, the book of Ezekiel uh, in chapter 20 that uh, Ezekiel uh, prophesied a time where the people of Israel are going to pass under the rod. In other words, Messiah is going to come back and separate his own sheep from those who don't know him. Uh, there are going to be no non-believing people in Messiah are going to go into his thousand-year reign that is described in Revelation chapter 20. So uh, those who come to him are going to come to him en masse during this time. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult time. Two-thirds of Israel is going to be wiped out by the Antichrist, we're told in the book of Zechariah chapter 12. But those who survive and come through, with a small amount of exceptions, are going to be those who truly put their faith and trust in Jesus. And that is what Paul is predicting here. To say that every single Israelite is, ever, is going to be saved because they're related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's one theory that's put out here. John the Baptist put that to death when he said, don't say that you're children of Abraham. I tell you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. It doesn't matter what your genetics are. What it matters is your heart. Mm. Uh, and so in the same way, we see that there's going to be this overwhelming response, the vast minority, you know, like the 7,000 <laughs> that didn't bow their knee to Baal. Well, there might be 7,000 that uh, will, would still follow the Antichrist, but the millions of Jews that are alive during this time and survive the tribulation will accept and follow Jesus as their mm -hmm. Messiah. So that's what's being referred to in that passage. And one of the reasons I just delight in this is because it puts us in our place as Gentiles. When I meet a Jewish person, I, I just have such respect for them because they are uh, genetically linked to Abraham. They were the ones that God originally came to deal with. We as Heinz 57, variety Gentiles like myself are uh, are really in, in a sense a plan B you know uh, because they rejected it God made his salvation available to the world uh, you know and again uh, you know I, I just love what Paul says here if their rejection was salvation of the Gentiles what will their acceptance be but life from death mm. so God definitely still has a plan 
for the Jewish people, and it's going to achieve its beautiful culmination at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, when we see the central role that uh, mm-hmm. Jerusalem and Israel and even the temple itself plays in that thousand-year reign of Christ, we see that God's going to be good to every promise he ever made to his people. Yep. So kind of a, I, I hope that wasn't uh, too complicated an answer, but it, it does require that kind of background to really understand what Paul's point is in that, that mm. passage. Awesome. Thank you. I remember reading and, a book about uh, whose promised land is it or something like that. And uh, I came across Romans 11 and re-studied it and re-examined it. And I thought, nope, that settles it for me. <laughs> okay. Well, we got time for at least another question here. So. Yeah. Uh, um, the name is uh, Dracula, Dracula Fan. Uh, why is there a need for robes in the new heaven and earth when there is no more sin and God doesn't see our sin? Well, there's no need for heaven, by the way. It's a want. It's a desire of God's. It's a blessing, not a necessity. God doesn't need to create anything. He chose to. God didn't need to anoint Israel for his purposes. He loves them. These are all decisions of the will, not necessities that God depends on in order to maintain his nature. When it comes to us wearing robes, it's not going to be to cover our shame like we see in Genesis chapter 3. We're told in Revelation 19 that the fine linen that the bride of Christ, all Ephesians 5, the same language, the church, is going to be wearing are the righteous acts of the saints. We'll be glorifying God through the way that we lived our lives, and there will be a physical representation of that. The idea that uh, we'll be ashamed of our nakedness and then have to wear these robes and that somehow some permanent scar misses the whole point, just note Revelation 19. The point of emphasis, of course, is in that, noting that God didn't save you because he had to, because he wanted to. That is a a whole (laughs) other layer to the meaning of it on its own. Just note that need is the wrong language there why we're given the answer in Scripture. Yeah, it's just going to be a tremendous blessing uh, to be clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. In the Mount of Transfiguration, we're told that his robes became as bright as lightning, that kind of righteousness. So uh, will we be wearing lightning rare? Wear? Quite possibly. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Eat your heart out, Thor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for tuning in. If you you want to ask a question, uh, please tune in tomorrow. Same place, same time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.